We've been at the book of Acts for a long time, (laughs) and maybe it feels like we're reaching down for a talking frog, but I'm going to take us back into the book of Acts after we've had a a wonderful hiatus, a bit of a break over, over the Christmas seasons. So those of you who are stretching your memory back are stretching it all the way back to the first Sunday of December when we were in Acts chapter 15. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in the book of Acts in chapter 16. Uh, I would love to have you read the whole chapter, but we're going to pick up that chapter partway through in Acts chapter 15, around the, um, the middle of the chapter, verse 13 or so. These are Paul and his traveling companions. In verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath, they went outside the city gates where they expected to find a place of prayer. And they sat down and they began to speak to a group of women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira. Her name was Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. And she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave, one who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned and said this to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that her hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace there to face the authorities. And we're going to stop there for today. We'll continue with the second half of that story next week. But but what I want to do this morning is to, to look at this section in the book of Acts in chapter 16 that deals with these three wonderful case studies of how God changes three very different lives. There's a woman and there's a girl. We just read about them. And then next week, we'll get to the third case study, the story of a Philippian jailer, the longest story, but we're going to hold off on to it until next week. Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, by the way, is involved in these very events. You'll notice if you pay careful attention as you're reading through the book of Acts, that sometimes the pronoun shifts. It shifts from the third person to the first person. So you notice in here it talks about us. They did this to us. She did this with us. Luke is not just writing about third-hand events. He was there. He was part of the recipient of the message and a participant in the activities. He was there, and he's remembering what happened. So here we have three marvelous examples of how the gospel changes lives. And we're going to look at the first two people. Who are they? How does the gospel come to them? What are the results? And then we're going to try and draw out some lessons for us today. Is that all right? I know I said there wasn't a sermon. There's a little bit of a sermon. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our God, open our, open our ears. Uh, make us receptive. 
give us the ability not just to discern the movement of your spirit, but but to allow it to do its fullest work in our lives. God, may the words of your scriptures leap off the page and come to life for us today. If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start looking at this marvelous woman named Lydia. Have a look at verse 13 again. On the Sabbath, Paul and Luke and the rest of the group went outside the city gate to the river, and there they expected to find a place of prayer. They sat down and they began to speak to the group who were there, a group of women. One who was listening was a woman from Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, a worshiper of God. So you learn just a few really fascinating things about this woman right off the bat. First, she's cosmopolitan. She was from Theatira, not from Macedonia. She went back and forth between Asia Minor and Macedonia. She's cosmopolitan. She's a traveler. Furthermore, she's, she's a merchant. She's a dealer. A dealer in what? In purple cloth. Sounds strange. She's a businesswoman. But to be a dealer in purple cloth, and this is the third thing, meant that she was a highly affluent, very successful business person. For whatever reason, Purple was the color that was most expensive to work with. Uh, I remember reading at some point that the dyes that were used to create purple cloth were made from the crushed shells of a very rare Egyptian beetle. I'm not sure whether that's the case, but whatever the case, it was expensive. That's why purple was a color that was reserved for royalty and for people of great affluence and beauty. It was considered a luxury. So Lydia is a person who sells beautiful clothes to beautiful people. She would have been well off. She'd be like, I don't know, she'd be like the modern equivalent of the owner of a high-end boutique down in Yorkville. She made a good living selling luxury goods to wealthy people. Not only is she a savvy businesswoman, we're actually told here that she's a worshiper of God. The technical term, and we've looked at it before, is God-fearer, a God-fearer. These are people who were were not Jewish, they're Gentile people who'd left behind their background in, in paganism, in, in polytheism, the worship of just this pantheon of, of gods and goddesses, and they started seeking the God of the Bible. So we have a person here in Lydia who, in many ways, is, is admirable. She's self-disciplined, we know that, because she's a savvy entrepreneur, she's a successful businesswoman. She's a moral woman, a decent woman. She's a spiritual seeker. She's a woman of integrity. How does the gospel come to her? Let's look closely. It says that sometimes the God-fearers went to the synagogue, but they're Gentiles, right? So they're not going inside. They had their own meeting. There was a separate place for them where they gathered, a place of prayer. It was a Sabbath, and on that particular Sabbath, it was a gathering of women. These female God-fears, Paul and Luke and the rest of the gang are, are, are traveling and they go on the Sabbath day to the synagogue and, and what do they find? They find this, this little meeting going on outside. And so they decide to join them, this, this group of God-fearing women. And it says of Paul and Silas and Luke, we sat down, we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. They sat down. I mean, this is not a big group. In big groups, you have to stand up. In large groups, you you need to project because there's no PA systems. Uh, That astounds me, Brian, that there could be church 
without AV and tech, but, but somehow there was in those days, but not necessarily here. It was a small group, a small setting, meaning that this is not a sermon. This is, this is not a pitch. This would have been a discussion, some give and take. This is a conversation. And in that environment, the gospel came to Lydia in that small group. Look carefully. Here's what happens. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That little word, the word respond, actually means to be attracted to. In fact, there's one place in the Bible that describes the addiction to wine as responding to too much wine, as being attracted too much to wine. To respond actually means that she's attracted, well, to what? She didn't just believe. She found something in what Paul was saying in that small group discussion to be absolutely wonderful. What could he have been saying? The Gentile God-fearers, they were kind of stuck when you think about it. On the one hand, they're leaving behind paganism and this this old worldview. We're going to talk a lot more about that worldview in a few weeks when we get to Acts chapter 17 and Paul in Athens and he goes to the Areopagus up there on Mars Hill and he speaks to the cultural elites. But the elite view, the elite view of paganism fell into two camps. You had the Stoics and you had the Epicureans. The Stoics believed that that the way to a good life was not to be attracted, not to love anything too much. That's where we get the word stoicism. It means not to attach your heart too much to anything. There's an old stoic proverb that says, a father, when a father is kissing his little boy goodnight, in his heart he needs to say to himself something like this, you may die someday soon. And the idea is to prevent too deep an attachment so that if there is the loss of a child, it wouldn't overwhelm you and afflict you too much. To be a strong person required that you not get too attached to anything. That's stoicism. Kind of a cynical view of life. And then there were the Epicureans. For Christmas, I got a set of cutting boards. They're called the Epicurean cutting boards. The idea is that on these things, you place exotic cheeses and fancy meats and all the stuff that you regret that you ate over Christmas. But there it is. The Epicureans believe that when you die, that's it. There's nothing. So the best that you can hope for is to extract all the possibilities, all the pleasures out of life now. Live for today. There is no tomorrow. Live for yourself because nobody else is going to give it to you. You know why there were so many Gentile God-fearers in the first century? People who left paganism behind, Stoicism and Epicureanism, and began to seek the God of the Bible? Historians say that in the first century, people flooded to Christianity from those other worldviews. Even though those worldviews produced incredible minds like Aristotle and Plato, people began to realize that ultimately, these were empty views of life. So many of the people that had been brought up with, with paganism said, there's no hope. There's no hope for the future. There's no ability to really love. This is... This is shallow, it's empty. And so they came to the God of the Old Testament. And in coming to the God of the Old Testament, they assumed we need to live according to the teachings, to the laws of God. But they began to feel the burden of all of that coming down on them. 
You remember we talked about that a little bit when we were in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, when Jewish Christians said, well, all of these God-fears, these Gentiles, who are coming now to the law, they ought to have to go through everything that we went through, including circumcision, which is a nasty way to get introduced to religion as an adult. But, but there it was. And it's Peter in chapter 15 who says, why is it that you're trying to test God by putting on the necks of these God-fearing Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is just the grace of God through which we are saved, just as they are. So what Peter's really saying is, hey, why are you so eager to have them take on the law that for centuries we've been trying to obey and we've only ever failed? You can't obey it. It's just a burden. So you have Lydia. You have Lydia and this little group of God-fearing women. On the one hand, they're trying to leave the emptiness of, of living for themselves, and yet they come into religion, and they get all the burdens and all the weight of religious activity. And, and if that sounds like an ancient problem, uh, I hope you have room to, to at least entertain the idea that that's probably a fairly accurate description of lots of people in the GTA who are stuck between the same two things. Canada is not a religious-free country. There's lots of religion in Canada. And yet, more people than not will check that little box that says, no religious preference when they're asked. And I'll tell you why. Lots of people, they go back and forth between the, the emptiness of trying to live for themselves or nothing, and it's, it, it's futile, between that and the burden of religiosity. All of this activity, all, all of these rituals and routines, and it feels like you're, you're always running on this treadmill of, of religious performance and you're not making any headway. And so they give up. They give up or their parents gave up and, and they just turn their back on it. And that's why when Paul says to Lydia and to that small group of women, he says, let me tell you something. I want to tell you about Jesus. And we don't know exactly what he said here, but we know what he says in all of us other writings. He would say something like this. Jesus lived a perfect life. The only one who ever did. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. And so he earned the, the blessing that perfect obedience deserved. At the same time, he took the curse that disobedience deserves. And when you believe in him, the consequences of your failures and mine, they fall somehow on him and, and the blessings earned by his obedience fall on you and you're saved by grace. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like religion at all because there's nothing for you to do. There, there's no religious activity for you to participate in. It's grace. It's just given. And at that moment, Lydia's eyes must have lit up. It's everything I've ever wanted. She was attracted to it. She didn't just believe it. She wasn't just convinced by it. It was so compelling that it had this magnetic attraction. This was a woman whose business was beauty. She sold beautiful clothes to beautiful people. But she never had seen anything quite as beautiful as this. She was attracted. She's an esthete. Do you know that word? Esthete, esthetician, aesthetics. She, her business was, was beauty. And, 
And she had never seen anything quite like this. And not only does she give her life to Christ, not only was she baptized, but she says, I want my home, I want my business to become a ministry center. The first in that part of the world. We're going to get back to that in a few minutes. But that's Lydia. What a great story. We named our daughter, one of them, Lydia. Rachel Lydia. Just It's such a powerful story about how God comes into people's lives. And then let's look at the other case. In verse 16, we come to this second case. Once we were going to the place of prayer, and we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And she earned a great deal of money for her owners. By what? By fortune-telling. Again, in that, in that short introduction, we learn an awful lot about this person. Again, it's kind of fascinating. First of all, it says she's young. It says a female slave, but actually the word there is a particular one. It means slave girl. She's a girl, teenager, between 10 and 14 years old. She's a kid. The second thing we know is that literally, if, if you were given this, Edmund, have you got your Greek Bible in front of you today? Okay. If you were given this in Greek, you would ferret out the different words and you'd come to a, an expression there that just doesn't translate well. But literally it says, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of the python. And you go looking in your dictionary because python is not one of those words that you memorized. Who had the spirit of the python. And because there's no English translation for that that makes any sense, they tend just not to put it in there. But the original readers and listeners would have known exactly what that means. The spirit of the python. What is that? The spirit of the python. Ancient readers knew of the legend of the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi. Some of you know that from mythology classes. Some of you just from the movies. (laughs) The Oracle of Delphi was the seer. The one who could see into the future. One who, according to mythology, had slain the python. This great snake or dragon or whatever it was. It's, It's an idiomatic expression for a person who could tell the future. Somebody with the spirit of the python is somebody who had the ability to see, who had the gift of fortune telling, or in this case, the curse. The people, they were uncommon, but I mean, strictly speaking, they weren't absolutely rare. In fact, there was a word that was used to describe them, and you're going to laugh when I tell you what the word is. These people were described as ventriloquists. That's where the word comes from. These were ventriloquists. They were a class of people who were bizarre, who, who obviously were troubled. They spoke wildly. They cried out. They, they shrieked. The reason they're called ventriloquists, though, is that when they spoke, these voices would come out of their mouths that just didn't seem to fit. Here's this 13-year-old girl, but out of her mouth would come the gravelly voice of a grown man. And if you're thinking Linda Blair from The Exorcist, you're probably on the right track. That's sort of what's going on here. And what's amazing about them is is that they were troubled, yes, they were wild, they were bizarre, yet at the same time, the things they said about the future would often come true. There's no way that this, this young girl would make money for her masters, she was a slave, remember, if her ramblings weren't at least sometimes accurate. Now, if you and I met her, we would immediately label her, label her mentally ill. 
And we'd probably be right about that. Except we'd have a little bit of trouble accounting for this fact. She seemed to know things that she shouldn't be able to know. That's who she is. How does she hear the gospel? Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and all the rest of us. And she was shrieking. These men are servants of the Most High God. And they're telling you the true way to be saved. This went on for days and days and days. And you can imagine this. Everywhere that they tried to go, here's this girl following behind them, shrieking out, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the true way to be saved. Nobody knew what Christianity was at that point. There was, there was nothing on these, uh, these men's garments or in their travel caravan that says these are missionaries of the Most High God. They know the true way. Here's the main idea. You know, maybe some of you remember a little verse in the book of James where it says that even the devils believe and tremble. Here's the point. The devil knows far more about God than you and I. In fact, the devil has incredibly accurate theology. The devil knows who Jesus is. The devil knows that Jesus is divine and human fused together in this marvelous, miraculous way. The devil has more accurate theology and better knowledge of God than you and I will ever have. It's just that he hates what he knows. And here's this young girl. She has a knowledge that she shouldn't have. How is it that she has it? I want to say something about this passage, and it's it's hard, and I probably wasn't always able to say it. But Some of you maybe are asking, do you believe that she was... Demon-possessed. Somehow possessed by an evil outside of herself. Are you really a person who lives in the 21st century, in the GTA, in the heart of the modern world, and you believe in demon possession? And after fighting it for maybe a number of years, I think my answer to that is yes. And you'd be naive not to. Andrew Delbanco an author who some years ago wrote a book called The Death of Satan. He's a professor at Columbia University. He's a secular man. He's not religious at all. And yet he says, and this is the whole idea behind his book, that modern people have underestimated the power and the complexity of evil. This is actually what he writes. Our sanguine theories, sanguine means simple and cheery, Our simple, cheery theories of the simplicity, the manageability, the controllability of evil have left us completely unprepared for the reality of evil. His point, and he's absolutely right, is that we underestimate the complexity, the depth, the intractability of evil. Modern people think that we can handle it. You can't. Evil is both natural and supernatural. It's both in here, but it's also out there. And you cannot account for evil just with psychology and sociology and science. There is an evil out there that is not natural. It's simply not human. And you cannot reduce it to the matter of my mother and father didn't raise me right. And that's why I do bad things. Something a whole lot worse than that. And we're naive to ignore it. So what comes... This shrieking slave girl. 
saying, these are men who are going to tell you the true way of salvation. Now, here's the question. Is she attracted to them or is she attacking them? Is she announcing them or is she denouncing them? What do you think? The answer is yes. Because I think that's who she is. If, if you want an analogy in your mind, think Gollum. Lord of the Rings, Gollum. She hates the light, but she loves the light. She hates the truth, but she loves the truth. She yearns for them and she's mad at them, which you, you actually are. If on the one hand, you know the truth at some level, but on the other hand, you hate the truth because you're spiritually enslaved. And that's who she is and that's, that's where she is. And by the way, she's not just a slave to these inner demons. Why is this little girl a slave? At some point, her parents sold her into slavery, rejected by her family, enslaved, oppressed, exploited, an inner slave to demons, an outer slave to systems which just kept girls in bondage. So if Lydia is the owner of a high-end boutique in Yorkville, then this girl, she is like the drug-addicted prostitute who's living in a crack house in Regent Park in Toronto. How does the gospel come to someone like that? Verse 18. She kept this up for many days, running around shrieking. And it says, finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, he's so irritated, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. See how different this is from Lydia? Lydia gets a Bible study and a conversation. Let's just sit down and talk about Jesus. This girl gets a power encounter. Lydia needs something very rational. This girl needs something very powerful. Lydia is kind of a good person who's, who's stuck between emptiness and burden. She needed to be shown the grace of Jesus. This girl didn't just need a message of forgiveness. She needs a whole new Lord in her life. She needs a new master. She needs to be rescued from slavery. And so Paul looks at her and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Names. Names were a big deal. Probably a bigger deal back then than they are now. Because they weren't just labels. If something inside, if your nature changed, you changed your name. That's why Abram becomes Abraham. That's why Saul becomes Paul. When your nature changes, your name changes. And what Paul is saying, he's actually saying to the demon, not to the girl. Jesus' name is greater than your name. Jesus' power is greater than your power. Now get out. Reminds me of a great Charles Wesley hymn. Is Jesus the name high over all in hell or earth or sky? Angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. There's still something about that name, isn't there? Let's put it all together in the last couple of minutes. What is it that we learn from these two case studies of how Jesus changes lives? Quickly, first, notice the importance of women in the early Christian movement. Paul sometimes has this negative reputation, by the way, on that subject, you know, that, that Paul had a, a, a thing with women. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I mean, he intentionally seeks out this group of women. 
He doesn't go into the synagogue. He could have. He's a rabbi, remember? He stays on the outside with women and spends time and converses with them and, and brings hope and, and the gospel to them. And look at the results. Lydia's house becomes a ministry center. She becomes a pillar in the life of the early church. Hers is the first church in the region. Secondly, though, I, I want you to notice how important it is to open your home for ministry. She opened her home. She opened her business. And, and the rest is, well, it's history. And it's part of an important history in the life of the church. For the first 300 years of the history of the church, we didn't own any buildings. We met in people's homes. People opened up their homes the way many of you open up your homes for hospitality. You open them up for welcome. You open them up to host small groups. A lot of you are saying, hey, I live in the GTA. I don't have a home. I have a hole. I mean, we're, we're like hobbits. We live in these little holes. We pay thousands of dollars and we, we live in that little hole. You realize that the history of the world has been changed by Christians who opened up their homes. The Christian movement was based on it. Let me bring you up to date. There's something like, I don't know, Sheldon, I don't remember, 250 people or 300 people that were meeting together in small groups, in people's homes, meeting week in or week out. And it's changing lives. Thirdly, look at, look at this wonderful verse, verse 14. How is it that Lydia believes? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. There's, there's a lot that we could say here, but there's just there's one thing I want you to see. Most people understand, I think, that, that if, if you're an addict, if you're addicted to something, alcohol or, or drugs or, or pornography or whatever it is, there, there is a deep layer of denial in your life. Part of the addiction is a kind of imposed blindness. You don't see how bad off you are. Somebody has to, has to break through. They have to intervene. They have to get you into a corner and, and take the glasses off of you and be able to say, you're an addict and you need help. This is something we understand, I think, as a whole culture. But do you realize that when it comes to, to the basic spiritual issue of our relationship with God, we're all addicts. Because nobody wants to believe that we're out of control of our own lives. We all want to pretend that we're in control of everything. We want to believe that we're competent to run our own lives in every detail. And the gospel says, no, you're not. You're not. And we don't want to accept it. And so we screen it out and we'll do anything. We want to live in denial. The only possible way that somebody actually comes to believe in God is when God himself makes an intervention. So there's actually this paradox. It's a, it's a real paradox. If you think of a door, think of yourself walking through a door. And you know the things that you have to do when you open up and when you pass through the threshold. It's a struggle. You have to make a commitment. You have to make a choice. You have to repent and believe. And over the door, there's a verse. And it's written above the door, whoever will. Whoever you are, if you make a choice, you can enter into the kingdom of God. And so you do. It's hard. You struggle. It's difficult. You go through the door. You believe in Jesus. You repent. And as you pass through the door, you look on the other side. And emblazoned above the door are the words, Behold, you have not chosen me, 
I have chosen you. That's the paradox. And you begin to think back over the course of your life and you realize how many small ways God was prompting you and nudging you and directing you and encouraging you, bringing you to that moment when you crossed the threshold and you were able to say it was all grace. It was all a gift. At a certain point, every Christian learns to sing the song, my heart owns nothing before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. And then the last thing I want to say, because it's really the, the reason for the entire chapter, and so I saved it to the end. You know what the chapter, I think, is trying to tell us? It just doesn't matter who you are. You need Jesus. No matter where you are, what your needs are, Jesus meets them. You won't find two people more different than these two. Add in the Philippian jailer who will meet next week and you have this trifecta. Lydia, the boutique owner in Yorkville. The girl, an addict and a slave. Lydia, an owner, a girl who is owned. Lydia at the center, you might say, of society. A prominent person. This girl way out on the margins. Lydia, completely pulled together. Self-discipline, moral, this girl completely out of control. And yet Jesus goes to them both and he wins them both and he fills a hole that's in the center of them both. Christianity is rich enough and flexible enough and true enough for anybody. It changes everyone. There is no Christian type. It's not just for conservative types, liberal types, cultured types, messed up types. Christianity is so true that Christ meets any need, fills any life. It it was beautiful enough for Lydia. It was powerful enough for that slave girl. Whatever you need, you will find it there. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your life, Jesus meets you right there. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the greatness of the gospel. We thank you that it's the power of God for salvation. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live as a community of people who are encouraged by that. Help us, help us, Lord, to remember the power in Jesus' name. Before it, angels and men fall and devils fear and fly. Nothing to be afraid of. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. Help us, Lord, not to neglect it, but to use it in our lives, to share it with others. And we pray it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.